we've been in this series uh, called Contrast, so we're going to be picking up uh, from last week. And uh, this series, Contrast, has a subtitle of When Worldviews Collide, right? We've been in this series where we're looking at the early days of the church, the fresh days right after this resurrected Jesus, right? Right after this, this man who claimed to be God died on a cross and it didn't just end there, but he resurrected. And because of that resurrection, he began to gain followers about the freedom that he brought human beings. How many of you know sometimes we frame our, our human capacity in the fact that everybody's bad? But how many guys know that it's not a bad person problem, it's a dead person problem? That we, that we come into this world depraved because of the curse of sin. That we fall short of perfection and the glory of God. And God had a rescue plan set up through his Savior. So the resurrected Jesus began to gain followers, which was known as his church. Rather than Jesus doing everything on his own, he filled the church with his spirit so that the message and the love of the good news of what Jesus brought was to be spread to everyone. But how many of you guys know during this culture, there was a lot of difference that existed in the ways that the people who followed the ways of Jesus and the ways that things were in terms of a Roman culture and society. So we've been looking at that throughout the book of Acts, throughout this book of the Bible that talks about the way that the early church lived. And this morning, we've been in different parts, and now we are at part eight, and I titled this morning as The Heart of an Overreaction. Anybody ever overreacted before in their life? Come on, somebody. Yep. All of us, right? Uh, pastor here uh, had a moment a couple months ago, uh, many of you know, if it's your first time. Uh, well, there was, a, there, was a, there was an afternoon where, or it was an evening where uh, our new puppy decided to poop all over the floor and pee all over our floor. And it was one of those days, just one of those days, you know, and uh, the stress level was a little bit higher. And as I was cleaning up in frustration, the best thing at that moment seemed to be an overreaction in terms of, hey, this carpet right here looks worthy of being punched out of frustration. So I did it and immediately regretted it, regretted it because I ended up breaking my hand. But I stand before you today, church, with no cast, no weird thing that has to move my finger fully healed. Come on, somebody. God is a God of redemption and healing. Praise God. Hallelujah. Um, you might be like, really? Um, so if, if it's your first time this morning and you, and you came to the church expecting this pastor to be perfect, you might have come to the wrong church. You know what I'm saying? Um, overreaction uh, happens to all of us. Uh, some occasions worse than others, right? But I think it's beautiful because even in the midst of my overreaction, there was a heart behind what was happening, right? How many of you guys know that it could have just ended there? But there was things that God began to just birth in my heart during this process of healing physically, but also what he was mending in my heart spiritually. God, the Holy Spirit just began to ask good questions. What's going on there to you? Why, why was that the outcome of a frustration level? Why, why were you that frustrated? Why were things building up in your heart? The Holy Spirit just began to convict and began to ask questions, began to get behind the heart of why the overreaction happened. Isn't that so good? Because sometimes we just brush on and just move on with life. And, and this morning, we're, we're going to look at, at a certain situation in the Bible and where we are in the book of Acts where this was happening, right? There was a, there's a, there's a story where it just seems like the consequences were so harsh, almost like an overreaction. So we're going to get deep down into the heart of what was happening and what was kind of playing out. Uh, as we read this in the biblical narrative. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 this morning, which for many scholars and, 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 and people who have studied the Bible their entire life becomes sometimes a, a troublesome passage for people. 
in the way that, 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 that this story plays out. But we're, we're going to look at it and we're going to really break it down and, and understand the heart behind what was happening. God's heart. God's, God's love. His grace. His good news, right? In the midst of, of, of a day and age where, where bad news becomes so constant. So let's look at this. Acts chapter 5. Up on the screens, if you're following along in your Bibles, we're actually reading out of the New International Version. If you've got your own version, that's great. We're going to be following along with the NIV up on the screen. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 says this. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. Last week we talked about the generosity of the church. We talked about that there was a floor that was the 10% of what church people were used to giving their entire life. But we saw the early church catapult themselves from that floor and begin to sell possessions begin to function in a way where each and every need in the community was being met simply because of people's generosity. I love that word generosity, right? It means going above and beyond. We saw this play out with the early church. But now we have a contrast. This man and his wife, Sapphira, it says in verse 2, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet, these leaders of the church. It says in verse 3, then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? It goes on to the next verse, verse 10. Moving on to the next, we got it back there, please. Are we missing it? Oh, I got it right here. I'm going to read it to you. Uh, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At, and at that moment, she fell down and died at his feet and or at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Let's pray this morning. Lord God, we come before you with a situation in scripture where we just are saying, we want to hear your heart. We want to know your heart. Lord, we want to see what's behind the surface. Lord, we want to dig deeper this morning, God. We want to understand what seems and can be sometimes categorized maybe as an overreaction. Lord, we want to know what you're speaking, what you're trying to show us through your words. Lord, help us understand that this morning. Help us understand the contrast. Help us learn and glean from you and your ways, Lord, because we know when we do that, Lord, restoration of this city, Lord, restoration of this world was at my, is in your mind and at hand. So, Lord, help us glean from that this morning in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen, amen. As I said, we're going we're gonna to kind of break this down this morning, but I also want to kind of understand where we left off last week, as I mentioned in Acts chapter 4, verses 36 through 37. Uh, we left off at the end of a narrative where it talked about a man named Joseph also named Barnabas. It says this, it says, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So like I said, we're, we're about to enter into what's the theme of this series, a contrast. We're constantly seeing through these chapters and acts this contrast of the difference in the way that people live. So in this, in terms of what we're about to enter into, there's this dynamic contrast that we're about to see. So let's, let's, let's break this down and let's look at those first four verses at the beginning of Acts chapter 5, where it introduces us, right, to this character. It says, now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, 
So there wasn't a full integrity of honesty here, you guys. He says, but he brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, Peter, the leader of the church during this time, right? How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? And it goes on and says, you have not lied just to human beings, but to God. This is what I know, first and foremost, I, this, this story, it's like death falls upon this, this, this couple, right? And, and I think we get so distracted in understanding that the key difference and contrast that I want us to kind of zoom in on here was the lie. It, it was the lie. We can so easily, there, there's a lot going on in the scripture, but I want us to focus in on the fact that there's a contrast happening that's focused on the lie. Because you might say to yourself, well, it seems like he's being generous. It seems like, obviously, he had the heart to give to the church. But there's a contrast happening, and the big contrast that we need to zoom in on, and the, the author Luke is wanting to point us to, is this idea of a lie. There was an honest offering that Barnabas had given, and then there was a more dishonest, more deceitful offering that this character Ananias put forward to give to the church. This isn't about a full offering versus an incomplete offering, right? I think we can get so easily confused. Well, he didn't give enough, you know, so God said it's rejected, right? No, that's not what's happening now. It's actually the integrity of the offering itself, the fact that there was deceitfulness within the heart of the person who was giving. You might say to yourself, wasn't he being somewhat generous, though? But here's what I want to say is that voluntary things don't always equate to integrity, right? Meaning this, Pablo Escobar, I can voluntarily give to the well-being of my country, but give it with bloody drug money, right? There's voluntary generosity, but I'm going to do it in a way that behind the scenes people are dying. Behind the scenes, things are, are, are not right, there's voluntary generosity, but in the background, things look like a mess that do not reflect God's heart and the way that he see thing, sees things. Walter White, right? The Walter White example. Anybody ever watch the show Breaking Bad? Come on, somebody. Come on, somebody. I love a good TV show. Walter White, have you ever seen this show? It's this, it's this, it's this, 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 this poor chemistry teacher, right, who uh, is diagnosed with cancer, and he's trying to fight and understand how he can provide for his family and keep everything together in his life. Always kind of lived his life with the idea that he was kind of a nerd and a failure. And he eventually goes to extremes to provide for his family and begins to deal drugs, begins to make drugs and deal them and makes to, begins to make money. It's interesting because you see in this show this beautiful sermon. How many guys know that some of the greatest sermons are preached in our television and movies? How many guys know that media, all it does is it, media, technology, people are like, wow, oh, technology in the church. You know what technology does? It just brings things to light that were already there in the first place. Come on, somebody. Technology just, all it does is get us closer to the reality of what's happening in our world. And you could forsake that, or you can embrace it and understand how we as the church need to reach that. But some of the most powerful sermons, this, this sermon preached in Breaking Bad shows this man who eventually begins to deceitfully take lies and embrace little lies, begins to deceive his family, begins to compromise values to the point where he's full-blown gone off the deep end, Right? But he's voluntarily done all that to provide for his family. How many of you guys know when those things aren't integrous, those things don't begin again to honor God's way on the front end, you can get yourself in a web of lies in an extremely messy situation. 
And here's what I love. Someone's integrity doesn't just drastically change overnight. It's usually little decision built on little decision built on little decision before it turns into a disaster. And we have somebody that makes a little lie here and being called out for it. There's a lot of what Jesus had to confront when it came to the people on the inside throughout his ministry. Jesus focused a lot on the inside integrity of people that said, I'm a representative of you, right? He typically judged those that were on the inside, God's people, more harshly. We see the Pharisees, the teachers of religious law. Those are the people he's constantly rebuking more than the false prophets on the outside, the sinners, the ones who weren't living according to God's ways, but weren't also claiming to be God's people. We see him actually embracing those people, inviting them to come on a journey, to live in a new way, according to the principles of the way that God sees the world. Come on, somebody. God knows our little lies can create such a web of problems. God himself understands the snowball effect and what sometimes can take place when we compromise in our lives the little things. Here's what's interesting about lives, or lies. Lies have to do with our communication. And how many of you guys know one of the biggest jobs for the early church was telling people, communicating to people the good news of Jesus and who he was. The only way this message could spread is if they were telling people. And if the integrity of that message began to get compromised, it ruined the entire mission, right? But we know the church began to spread because people heard this pure message of what Jesus did and what he saw for the world. And that he was bringing new life to people that understood they were imperfect. He was bringing a new way that didn't put pressure on us to be people or be somebody, but put pressure and faith on him to say, Lord, we trust in you to be our God, our Lord. Lead us. And he offers us forgiveness. He offers us grace. It's interesting. We read in the early books of the early church, and we read there's such an emphasis on language, right? We read in Acts chapter 1 about tongues, universal language of God beginning to fall on people. This communicative gift, right, that has to do with the tongue. We read about the prayers of the early church and how God moved when his people prayed. Once again, an activity that is initiated by the tongue. There's such an emphasis on the tongue, and now the tongue is beginning to be compromised by lies, by deceiving the truth. I heard a great quote about lying. It said this, lying is this, a way of declaring that we don't like the world the way it is, and we will pretend that it is somehow more the way we want it to be. When you know that things aren't true, but you say it anyway, you pretend. And sometimes we have to be a people that wake up. We can't pretend anymore. Because when you stop pretending, you know what you do? You become a change maker. You become an agent for change saying, I, did, I see the world in its broken state, and I want to make a difference. I want to move forward. I want to see restoration in my community. The things that I don't like, I don't just sit around, complain about it, post it on Facebook. But I actually say, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is, and I'm going to move forward, and I'm going to be a change agent. Come on, somebody. God is calling his church to be change agents. But it takes a pure form of understanding his love, his grace, his message. What's actually being offered to the people around us? There's a contrast that we're seeing, right? We're seeing that Satan has, in fact, filled this man, as the scripture says. Satan has filled Ananias rather than him being filled with what we see throughout the book of Acts, the spirit of God. 
right? God's spirit. I love Jesus' game plan. He's like, I'm not going to get this all done, but I know my spirit multiplied can allow this to be something that impacts the world. So he sends his spirit, empowers his church. He doesn't say, well, church, you sit off to the side and I'm going to do the work. No, he says, church, people, join in and understand that I'm going to allow you to experience amazing things on this earth as we participate and get connected to our life's purpose and understanding that we're making a heavenly impact on people's lives when we choose Jesus and his message of reconciliation. Amen. Whereas Satan fills the hearts to lie, God's spirit fills the believer, the one who trusts in Jesus to speak his genuine message. And there's a danger, right? We know there's a danger of of the, the forces of evil beginning to intercept what God's trying to do. I think about the time when Jesus was ready, right? He grew up in stature, and grew up in wisdom, and what does he do? He goes out before he even begins his ministry, before he even preaches a message. We have this narrative that tells us that he goes into the desert and he is tempted by Satan, right? But we know after those 40 days that what happens? He's, he's tempted, he's tested, and he overcomes because he's perfect, right? But now we're getting into a situation with a bunch of people that are imperfect, right? And we understand that there's a danger at hand, We understand that we have God on our side, but we also understand that we are imperfect people. So we have this contrast and understanding that Ananias in this situation, there's a danger of the intercept, and it's beginning to happen. And the leader of the church, Peter, he he takes this very, very seriously. It's like Ananias is the new Judas, the one who rejected Jesus, and Peter's not having it. Being deceptive in the same way Judas was with money and gain. Betraying Jesus for some property. Betraying Jesus, the one he walked with, learned from. The one he experienced his love, decided to compromise with the issue of money, with the issue of things. Rather than confront the issue of eternity. Confront the idea that each and every one of us, one day, will have to face the idea of death. We're naturally in these bodies, not internal people interesting. So I want us to, to kind of confront this from the beginning. Before we get into a lot of the depth of the theology here, I want us just to understand that this is about the little compromise. This is about the little lies. And I want to ask us this question as, as we're diving in and going deeper. How do we currently lie to others and ultimately to God? Sometimes if, if you're a person who's been a believer or been in church for a long time, you do this with biblical convictions. You compromise. You know there's things that God has planted in your life that he wants you to step forward in, but you've just been resisting. I think it's really interesting. Thomas Jefferson, one of our presidents, right, he used to just go through the Bible and cross out the parts that he didn't like. Nah. As a follower of Jesus, how many guys know we don't have the freedom to do that? We can't just go through our Bible and say, well, you know what, God, that part about it, eh, I'm not down with that. Well, that part, you know, that, I know that's your ideal, but what, I'm not even going to strive for that. You know, I'd rather just kind of sit here and be who I am. For some of us in the room, that's, that's us. There's, there's things maybe that you've just been kind of compromising on. And you've just been kind of lying to God, acting like God doesn't see the fact that you've just kind of compromised some things that maybe God's spoken to you and said, you need to move forward. You need to progress a little bit in your life. Because how many of you guys know when we progress past ourselves, we begin to actually fulfill the heart of Jesus and reach people? We get to think beyond our own problems, and we get to serve others and aid others and be a helping hand, being a servant just like Jesus 
when we encounter those who are having a hard time. Maybe this morning you're, you've just been ignoring your conscience in ethical matters. Maybe you're just the person that you, there's things that you know just are kind of right and wrong that have just kind of been built inside you since you were born, and you've just kind of compromised. Maybe your conscience has become a little callous, and right now maybe God's kind of getting your attention. Just right now in this moment, just kind of remind you, yeah, what are, what are some ways where you just know deep down in your conscience you've just kind of made some compromise? How have you just kind of compromised and began to lie to others and, and ultimately lied to a higher power? I want us to kind of frame, as we are diving into the scriptures this morning, with that. How are we lying to others and ultimately how are we lying to God himself? All right. Now we're going to get into the meat of it because things start to pick up really quickly, right, in Acts chapter 5. Here we go. Acts chapter 5. Let's keep on going. 5 through 10. Here we go. When Ananias heard this, Peter calls him out, right? When he heard this, he fell down and died. I don't know about you, but the last time I lied, I didn't fall down and die. You might say, well, this is a really just specific, this is a one time. Let's keep reading here. Then some young man came forward, wrapped up his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in knowing what had happened. So she knew. She was complicit. Come on, somebody. Verse 8, Peter asked her, come clean, girl. I know husbands and wives, they talk. You know what I mean? Tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? There's the opportunity. What'd she say? Yes. She said, that is the price, knowing that it wasn't. Verse 9, Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door. Keep going to the next slide here. And they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. We see a consequence happen because of the lying. We see Ananias lying. We see the wife, Sapphira, obviously complicit in the lying. But this all seems kind of like an overreaction because the consequence for the lying becomes death. Once again, I haven't met somebody in my life who's lied and has died as a consequence from that. That should disrupt our thinking as a leader, I mean as readers of the Bible. We should say something's, something's happening here below the surface that maybe I don't understand at a certain level. Sometimes we breeze by these things and we don't realize how inconsistent our ideas about the Bible and God are. So I want to confront some of these things this morning. Is it okay if I take you a little bit to Bible college this morning? We're going to look, and for some of you who are like nerdy kind of theologian type people, you're like, I'm ready to go. Others of you are like, this doesn't even matter, so you're just going to have to like pause your brain for like 20 minutes or whatever it's going to take, and I'm going to walk us through this. But I truly believe this matters to the Lord, because when we honor God with our minds, God becomes honored. He says, love the Lord with your mind as well. We've been spoon-fed Christians for way too long, because the Bible constantly advocates for maturity. We need to be people that not just take the Bible for what it is, but investigate it for ourselves. This should cause problems with us when we see somebody simply just lied and they died. Because that doesn't seem much like Jesus' ministry. I don't know about you, that doesn't seem much like what Jesus was trying to accomplish when he was on earth. So it should cause problems. But let's just, before we even dive into any of that, we need to understand something as well. 
The early church was functioning much like the temple during this time. In fact, the, the Bible says that the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. What used to be a building, which used to be a place that represented where God's presence hung out, now God has multiplied that through his Holy Spirit and allowed our bodies to become his temple. So for the audience and for the readers during this time, they would reflect back to a time where the temple was constantly in a state of rigid holiness. This wasn't something that you messed with because God's instituted laws said so. There were certain community things that God had instituted with his people that said, you don't mess with the holiness of the temple because it's God's temple, right? For instance, we have a few examples throughout the scripture. The Ark of the Covenant, basically this centerpiece of the temple that represented God's presence. Well, before they built the temple, they were having to take this thing everywhere, right? And we read this story that kind of just shakes us a little bit where they stumbled when they were carrying it. One guy reached out and accidentally touched it, and he dies. This starts sounding kind of familiar, you guys. The church is becoming God's temple, and there seems to be these unreasonable, harsh consequences for not upholding the holiness of this temple and his presence. The temple itself, when it was built, contained warning against anyone who was unfit to even come close, including Gentiles. There was a certain group of people that weren't even allowed to come close to God's temple. Jewish women could only go in as far as a certain point. That doesn't seem right, but these were God's instituted laws. Only the priest could go into the inner court, and only the high priest himself could go into the central shrine known as the Holy of Holies, and then only once a year, and they took all kinds of precautions. So there's this idea and this parallel of holiness we need to understand because God's people were becoming the physical, movable temple of God that is spreading out and there to be the vessels of God's love for everyone to experience and digest. So if you had the name of Jesus in your life and you invoked the Holy Spirit and you claimed to be the temple of the living God, there were bound to be consequences. But it seems like in this situation, the judgment was pretty swift. The judgment seems a little harsh. Death? Once again, we live in a day and age where, I don't know about you, I've lied before. I've, I've been a person who's claimed Jesus, and I've lied before. Here I am, once again, imperfect, and I didn't die. So that seems a little bit inconsistent in terms of what this experience is showing us in the early church. We have to understand the contrast. We have to understand the difference. And most of all, I want to understand God's heart behind it all. So we're going to look, and we're going to break this down, and we're going to try to tackle this and understand this. Because when you read the entirety of the Bible, it starts to make sense. But some of the stuff that we read... We have to investigate under the surface. So let's do that together. First thing I want to say is this. Let's look at Jesus' ministry in terms of how Jesus reacted in a very similar situation where the consequences could have gone the other way. Okay, Luke chapter 9 in the NASB. Chose that just because it, it really illustrates it beautifully. Here we go. Jesus' ministry. Here we go. The living God in, in human form. Living, breathing, showing us, expressing God's heart in human form. And how he ministers to people, how he serves people. It says, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent a messenger on ahead of him. And they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. Okay, Jesus needs to stop, have a place to rest, you know. Verse 53, but they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. Here's the key factor I want. They did not receive him. They rejected him. Here's God himself there physically with them 
they are rejected. You would think that was offensive in terms of the idea that, man, maybe they deserve death. Because this is God himself right there. This isn't some passive, like, out there, we're kind of lying as a byproduct that leaves its way in there. This is God himself in his ministry, and he's being rejected. So the disciples, 54, when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Let's take them out. Let's do what the consequence shows us at how there was a reaction in Acts chapter 5. Let's kill them. Let's take them out. They're thinking of the ways that the old prophets used to call upon God and curse those who are not cursed or followed after God. This idea of blessings and curses that God set up. Let's call upon fire from heaven. Let's kill them. Let's destroy them. Let's wipe them. Let's judge them. How does Jesus react? This is key, you guys. So how does Jesus react? How does he disciple his disciples in this situation? Verse 55. But he turned and rebuked them. And he said this. You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man, speaking of himself, did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Once again, this should cause trouble as we're reading Acts chapter 5 and understanding things aren't beginning to line up. Because we have a church representing Jesus. And then we look at the ministry of Jesus and we see death being an option. We see death being invoked. And we have Jesus saying, no, 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 no. I came to save. No, no, no. I'm gonna... We, we got to deal with these inconsistencies, you guys. We have to confront these things head on. Was Jesus' heart a heart of judgment and death? No. But when we question God's justice in the Bible, we have to understand this simple truth. We're going to dive into this. God acts in accordance with the covenant that he is in. Many people read a lens of the Bible and apply a lens, read the Bible with a lens over their eyes. Everyone does this. There's a bias, right? But I would argue one of the best ways to interpret the Bible, the initial lens that you need to read the Bible with when you're reading a certain point in the Bible is understanding what covenants were in place during this time. Because God acts in accordance with the covenant that he is in. What, is, what does covenant even mean? In the ancient world, this is a covenant. When two parties came together, they would write and sign an agreement and it would be legal and binding. And throughout the scripture, it's hard for us to understand this because this isn't our culture. But to unlock the Bible, understand the Bible, interpret the Bible rightfully, we have to understand the culture during this time. Because when we begin to apply our own lens, our own Western culture, the Bible gets really inconsistent and confusing. But we have to be good studiers of God's word. We have a resource in our library that I've highly recommended in a previous series. It's a cultural background study Bible. It is so helpful. It's Bible college in a book. You know what I mean? It's basically, it helps you with the things that we just don't understand. Because culture is a huge, a huge part of understanding uh, where we're going, how to interpret the Bible, how to understand. Come on. So culture becomes, creates this kind of gap in our understanding and how we interpret the Bible. And what we're dealing with is extremely cultural because it has to do with covenants. Covenants is how God acted within the context of humanity in the biblical narrative. And he still acts with us today. He still acts in covenant with us today. We are partakers of what's called the new covenant, which we'll talk about. But let's look at this for a second. We have to understand the different covenant types. I'm just going to take you to school a little bit this morning so we can unpack and understand this. Because we can't just brush by this. We can't. If this is what we're talking about, let's, let's dive in deep and try to understand what's happening here. Here are the common covenant types in the Bible. This is going to start to unlock the way that we view the Bible if you don't know much about this already. There's three main types that we see in the scriptures. 
There's called what's called the grant covenant, this contract where a greater party takes on all of the lesser's responsibilities. This is awesome. You want to get in the covenant with somebody with a grant covenant because you realize that they just do things for you. It's on them. They bless you. And what do we have to do? We just get to be recipients of that. That's awesome. Then we have what's called a kinship or a parity covenant. This is where two equal parties come together and uphold responsibilities. This is what is the marriage covenant. Sometimes we're like, oh, where did I hear that word covenant before? Well, the marriage covenant. The biblical marriage covenant is a kinship or a parity covenant where two people come together, make a covenant under God with one another and are equal parties who basically uphold responsibilities. And then we have the worst of the three, which is called the vassal or the suzerain. This is a covenant where the greater party has all the power and the lesser has to uphold a large number of obligations. Meaning this, many times back in the day when a king would come and conquer a city, he would spare the people's lives by saying, hey, you have to get into a covenant with us. You have to get into a covenant with our nation where I'm sparing you your life, but you must uphold all of these responsibilities. This was not a covenant you necessarily wanted to get into. This was not very desirable. Okay, so let's take it a step deeper because if we're talking about the Bible, if we're people that value the Bible, understand the Bible, let's see where covenants begin to show up in the Bible so we understand them. Okay, covenants that God initiates in the biblical narrative. There are five main ones, five big ones. So let's talk about them right now. So once again, we'll understand the narrative and the progression of God's story throughout the biblical narrative. Let's talk about this. First, let's talk about the Noahic covenant. Noah, right? The flood, the ark, some of you, I mean, you don't have to be a person that's even walked into church without knowing that you've seen Bruce Almighty or the, the second one about Noah's ark and all that. You know, once again, there's sermons being preached everywhere. This is kind of common knowledge in terms of knowing the ark. Like, we teach kids about this, even if you don't even, like, affiliate yourself with church. Here we go. But he made a covenant, right? This was a grant covenant. God said, it's all on me. Here's what I'm going to promise. I'm never going to flood the earth again. And the sign that you're going to have for that is the rainbow. Boom. Okay, that's a grant covenant. There's an example. That's an ongoing covenant that God has promised, and it continues to today. Then we start getting into some of these different covenants throughout the Bible, the Abrahamic covenant. We have this character named Abraham, and God initiates a covenant with him, a grant covenant where he says, it's on me. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be a blessing. You just receive it. All of the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And we're going to talk about this later, that that actually happened. God was a great covenant partner. But then we also see that being fulfilled with the new covenant, with what Jesus had done. I don't want to skip too far ahead, so let's, let's keep moving. The Davidic covenant, another example of a grant covenant, meaning this, that God promised through the line of David that a Savior would be born. He says, I'm going to build this kingdom. He talks to David, King David, this mighty warrior who destroyed Goliath, and he makes a covenant promise saying, all you got to do is receive it. You're going to be a king of a great army of Israel, of God's people, but I just want you to know that I'm going to bless you and some things are going to get fulfilled through you. Boom. That's an example of a grant covenant. All great covenants to engage with that God has initiated with his people. Then we start getting into some problems here. And I skipped a little bit ahead in terms of the chronology, but we have what's called the Mosaic Covenant, which comes from the name Moses. This is the covenant where Moses became the mediator. It's also known as the Old Covenant. It's also when we read the Bible, what the Bible is referring to when it says the Old Testament or the New Testament. The first two-thirds of the Bible, we consider that the Old Testament. The, the second, uh, the one-third is the New Testament, right? Testament simply just means covenant. When I'm talking about covenants, we're talking about testaments, the same. It's interchangeable language, right? This was a grant covenant that God offered his people. Exodus chapter 19, we read about, or we read about this idea that God offers a grant 
covenant to his people. He says, I want to be your people. You're going to be my priesthood. I want to have relationship with you. And in the biblical narrative, what we see in Exodus chapter 19 in the background in Deuteronomy 5 is we see a people that rather than come and come before God in relationship up to this mountain where God was at, they said, no, we don't want to. In fact, in fact, Moses, can we send you up instead? What was being offered in this contractual agreement, what God was offering, let's be in relationship. People, come to me. Let's be in this amazing relationship with one another, where we are community amongst one another, where you will have a relationship with me. And the people said, no, we're too scared. God, we don't want it. You are too powerful. We would rather send Moses instead. When this moment happened in the biblical record, this is where the covenant transitioned from a grant covenant to a kinship covenant, meaning that they said, no, we don't want that. We'd rather have a mediator. So what happened is the mediator split the parties where there was responsibilities. And that, from that point on in the biblical narratives, is where God begins to give his laws, his commandments. And we see all of these different laws that divided relationship between God and his people. And the covenant transitioned from a grant covenant where the people said, we don't want that. And now it, trans it transitioned into what's called a kinship covenant where both parties need to uphold their sides. But if you've ever read the Old Testament, you realize the people of God... Were they very faithful in upkeeping the things that God told them to do? Nope. Wandering in the desert for 40 years, as we read, awaiting the promised land simply because they couldn't get it together. And because they couldn't get it together under the leadership of Moses, unfortunately, the covenant has to be changed. There's a new covenant ceremony that downgrades the current covenant. And that's where we get to the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy in the Bible functions and, and, and plays out just like the, the, the basically the flow of a covenant contractual agreement. And when the baton has been passed from Moses to the new leader Joshua, God has no other choice but to downgrade the covenant because the partners in this kinship covenant, God's people, have been so unfaithful as partners. So they've rejected the grant covenant that God has given them. Now as we read through the Bible, we understand that they're horrible covenant partners, and now God has been left no other choice but to do it, downgrade this covenant because he's acting in accordance with the covenant that has been agreed upon, and now they enter themselves into the worst type of covenant, which is called a vassal or suzerain covenant. One where they are slaves to certain guidelines. And you might say, this is what's so interesting. A lot of atheists cherry-pick the book of Deuteronomy and say, look at how crazy your God is. Why would you be a person that goes to church? Look at what God is making people do. You know how God dictated the rules and the regulations that the people of God would follow? He looked around the communities. In fact, there was a tribe called the Hammurabi, and if you look during the culture of this time, the laws that God instilled in the book of Deuteronomy were very similar to the different tribes in the surrounding areas. But I love it. If you compare notes, God actually gave them more desirable rules. He actually upgraded that a little bit. But these rules were oppressive, and they weren't a display of God's heart. Once again, we read in Deuteronomy, this is where much of the blessing and curse language comes from. This is where the idea that if you're not with God, then those people can be rejected and destroyed. This is where we start beginning to see a lot of the judgment of God manifesting simply because of humans' decision to reject a covenant where we would say, you will be our God and we will be our people. God was trying to initiate something, but I love it in the background. God was still stirring something in the background for his people, a plan and a solution plan. So it's interesting because out of all the covenants, and then we have the new covenant. 
what Jesus did for us, right? And we're going we're gonna to talk about that a little bit as well. But we have this other covenant that isn't a reflection. That's actually a rejection from the greatest type of covenant that God tried to initiate, but his people rejected. Deuteronomy is where people paint the picture that God is unjust and barbaric. Let's look at it. There's a chart I want us to look at, and we're going we're gonna to refer to this as we go along here. So the question becomes for us, you say, well, why are we even talking about any of this? Because when we question God's justice in the Bible, we have to understand what God is acting upon. And many of God's actions in the Bible are an outcome of the covenant that he is engaged in with his people. So what covenant are we talking about in the book of Acts? Because Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection established this new covenant. But there was this other covenant. And here's what I would ask this morning. Do we understand fully if that was just a clean break? When the new covenant began, did that mean that the old covenant stopped? And many people would say, well, yes, of course, because we look at the New Testament and we look at the Old Testament, we understand that the New Testament obviously represents the new covenant. But how many of you guys know that's just a title of a section of God's word? That's just a title that was given. That doesn't necessarily help us understand biblically what's happening. In fact, if, if we say that, that, that the new covenant started at Jesus' birth, it makes absolutely no sense because... As we read in the scriptures, the Bible says that Jesus was born under the law. In other words, Jesus was born under this old covenant. So it's not as clear cut or as a clean break as we'd like it to be or as many people would argue for. When did this old covenant stop? Many believe Jesus' birth started that or did that, but as we, we talk about, no. And here's, here's what I want to present to us this morning. Many scholars and many modern people who have studied the Bible understand the covenants, have made an argument and understanding, and it, it makes us understand the Bible so much more clearly when we understand the covenants, that the old covenant did not stop at Jesus' birth. It did not stop at Jesus' resurrection, but it was completely obliterated in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. Very interesting when you read the history of the temple when it was destroyed, because from that point on, people who wanted to practice a pure form of Judaism couldn't anymore because everything was obliterated. When Jesus said, no stone will be left unturned, the disciples asked him, hey, when's the end going to happen? And he talks about behind him this beautiful temple where he talks about, this isn't going to exist for much longer. This is going to be destroyed. He's speaking prophetically towards the future of a time which 40 years later, the temple was about to be destroyed. And when that moment happened, any idea of the law or any practice of what people did to commit themselves to a pure form of Judaism was destroyed. In fact, we have rabbinic Judaism start from that point on because people had to rely on Judaism in a different way because they did not have the pure form and the documents and the things that existed within the temple. Everything changed at that moment. So it's interesting when we begin to apply this and we look at this. We have the covenant of Abraham and it goes on and then we see Jesus, the new covenant. And we see the blessing of Abraham expanding to everyone. All of the earth will be blessed through you, which happened. But then we see that fully expressed when Jesus comes. Where it doesn't matter who you are, you belong. Where it doesn't matter who you are, if you're born and you're breathing, you understand that God is for you. You understand that that blessing that was given to Abraham expands to the whole earth. 
We get to David and understanding that through him, through the lineage of David, a savior would be born. That rather than thinking about a king in terms of earthly king, that King David was extremely successful, considered one of the greatest kings of Israel. There's a higher king, come on, that wants to advocate on behalf of us. And that blessing expands to the whole earth. Then we get to the Moses, the old covenant, that downgrades itself into this covenant that wasn't ideal. This covenant needed to be replaced. But we can understand that the moment the new covenant was instilled, it's almost like this covenant was continuing. It's almost like this covenant was hovering in the background until it was absolutely obliterated in A.D. 70. And this helps us understand through the lens of the covenant what was happening in Acts chapter 5. What do I mean by that? We're talking about a 40-year period between Jesus' birth, I mean Jesus' death in A.D. 70 when the temple was destroyed. And here's what's interesting about this. The year 40 represents so much in the Bible. We're where bad things transition to good, where Jesus was tempted for 40 days, right? And then what does he do? He overcomes the devil and the enemy. When God's people were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, what was bad, they eventually transitioned to something good. What was initially something that was bad, that existed, it transitions and it is obliterated. And now we can live under the new covenant of God fully without this idea of things beginning to coexist. So how did this apply during the biblical period, right? How did this apply during this time? Because in the same way that Elijah had the power to call God upon the old covenant, and God would be faithful to follow through because of these laws and these regulations that had been set up, God was just to curse and destroy and obliterate. But how many of you guys know under the new covenant, as Hebrews would argue, the better covenant, as the book of Hebrews would talk about this transition of the covenants to help us understand what's happening here, we understand that today we live fully under a new covenant. But we have Peter in Acts chapter 5 acting out in a way where Jesus wasn't around anymore to rebuke him. We have the authority that's given to Peter under this old covenant that's existing during this time to rebuke and call death upon this couple that seems so contrary to the heart of God. But I would argue with you this morning that it is. How many of you guys know that Peter continued to be a racist throughout the book of Acts, refusing to want to preach to the Gentiles because he didn't think the message of God was for them? Was he operating under this new covenant of forgiveness and grace that Jesus offered? By no means was he. We see this walking out of God's people of understanding what it means to be a person who's lived under slavery of the old covenant for so long while embracing the new. But we have this overlap of period where God still responds in the same way that he did before the temple in the old covenant was completely obliterated and destroyed. The fact that Peter had the power does not necessarily mean his actions express the heart of God. In fact, nowhere in the book of Acts does it say that Peter's actions were right. Or God was the one who killed them. Acts is simply the record of what happened. That does not mean that everything in it was the will of God. The Bible is descriptive many times rather than prescriptive. Sometimes we look into it in different lenses that create issues and inconsistencies in the ways that we view God. Peter was acting according to the old covenant of judgment, which until the temple was destroyed, that covenant was still existing, not the new covenant of forgiveness. Let's, let's think about this contrast for a second. Jesus and Judas. Jesus 
and Judas. This man who walked with Jesus, who then eventually betrayed Jesus. I love that moment in the garden when they're praying and, and, and Judas comes up and, and, and basically the betrayal happens, right? And what do we see? We see the disciples. We see the cutting off of an ear. We see it. And what, Jesus says, stop. The new covenant. This new covenant of forgiveness and grace. Stop. Stop retaliating. In fact, we have this man who betrays him. And does God himself in the flesh have the power to destroy Judas? Yes, he does. He has the power to obliterate him. Why didn't he? Because he a God, is a God who operates out of reconciliation and restoration. Come on, somebody. Rather, he chooses to wash Judas' feet. And then we get to these early disciples who are having a hard time of understanding what this even looked like. And we have a Satan-filled-his-heart type character just like Judas, like Ananias. And unfortunately... Jesus wasn't the one to be there personally to regulate. And Peter and the apostles are trying to figure out a way to walk this new covenant out. But in a moment of weakness, rather than Ananias receiving the same grace that Jesus offered Judas, he acts out of a different spirit. A spirit of judgment, which obliterates this couple. Am I devaluing the idea of lying this morning? By no means am I devaluing the idea of, of lying. But what this does is it begins to bring in our vision and understanding God's heart and God's grace. The reason why under the new covenant, when we lie, God does not strike us down because we live under a, under a covenant of forgiveness and grace. Come on, somebody. This morning, we have to read the Bible with the lens of the covenant to start unlocking some of the things that we, we just never understood before because God acts in accordance with the covenant that he is in. Under the new covenant, we do not have the right to release judgment on anyone. Because Jesus, when he talked about judgment and pointing the finger, what did he say? He said, turn that finger back around and start looking at yourself a little bit. The ethics of Jesus in the new covenant are one that express divine love and forgiveness. And for some of us in the room, this is hard to grasp because we want to be the God of judgment. But there's one God of judgment at the end of the day is when his patience runs out and we don't have the opportunity to labor in love anymore where everyone will stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But in the meantime, we have been given a vehicle and a covenant of love and grace. Let's see how this, this scripture finishes. Does this in Acts 5.11. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Well, of course, there's a seriousness, obviously, when the integrity of the communication begins to get diluted. And this is where I want us to understand this. And this is where I want us to walk away with something this morning. Although we know we live under a new covenant of grace and love that does not devalue the mission of what Jesus was trying to accomplish. Here's what I know. If we lie... If we let the little things begin to dilute the message of Jesus in our lives, how many of you guys know that, once again, God is gracious? We're not going to be struck down by lightning because that covenant in the way that God functioned according to those actions of blessings and curses don't exist. Actually, we get to just receive the blessings of the grant covenant. Come on, somebody. But here's what I do know. The mission is still at play. That same mission in the book of Acts, meaning the same thing that irked God's heart in terms of that reaction is the same thing that irks God's heart when we dilute the message, the pure message of God's love for the world. The same impact has the same feel on God's heart, but because we live under a covenant of forgiveness, God responds differently. And here's what I know. 
Jesus is very gracious towards us. But you know what's not? The world. You can try to fool God all you want, but you know what a good reminder that God's not fooled usually is? Is that people aren't fooled either. If you want to give people a brand of Christianity where you feel like you can do little lies, you can feel like you can say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't follow everything. Yeah, I love you, but in the meantime, I'm just kind of judging you in my head. People can sense and understand that, and all that's doing is diluting the purity of God's message. The message that has expanded today, changed people's lives, and gotten us from a handful of people in the book of Acts to millions upon millions of Christians today. And I don't know about you, but I know people in our community, I know people that don't know God's love, that I want to know God's love. And my hope is that when they see our church, when they meet people in our church, they see grace, they see forgiveness, and ultimately when they see that, they see Jesus. But how is our lives personally beginning to be compromised with the purity and the integrity of that message? Because the same thing is at stake. But the beauty is we're offered so much grace and love in the meantime. Come on, somebody. Those who claim or make the claim of Christian and live by that claim must expect to be judged by that claim. This is a terrifying prospect. But Jesus is gracious. We need to take these little things more serious. And maybe we'll see the other things begin to come true. Sometimes we become the church that says, man, we want to see the things that the church saw in the book of Acts. But in the meantime, our lives are still being compromised in the background. What if we begin to honor God in a whole nother level? I truly believe God will respond in a way where we will see freedom break through like we've never seen it before. Where we would see healing break through in a way that we've never saw before. The people in our prayer lists would just begin to be immensely fulfilled by the miraculous cause of God because we worship a God who sees broken things and he fixes them and he mends them in Jesus' name. The heart behind this overreaction this morning is this. We'll end in the same way that we began. The goodness of God spreading in the most pure form possible. Jesus wants his message to be spread. And he did it in a way where he takes us into consideration. But how often do we fumble and fall short of that glory that he has? But in the meantime, he's willing to work with us as we strive to become more and more like him. The heart that God has for this world is one that we can't even fathom at moments. But it's amazing to know that he allows us in our imperfect state to join in and be a part of it. That is the grace of God. And that is the covenant he has extended to his people. Amen.